works on a sliding scale So does pleasure in a candy jail True love doesn't come around anymore Hey everybody, welcome to Candy Jail. Thanks for being here. Um, get us the fuck out, please. Every two weeks we tell you we're in jail and none of you ever do anything about it. Um, but since we're here, we're going to have a conversation. Um, Last night we watched the 1988 uh, concert documentary Rattle and Hum, uh, which I have seen many times, or at least I thought I had seen many times, um, which you, Robert, hadn't seen until last night. And um, we have spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about a sort of obscure figure, um, and we thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about maybe the least obscure band mm -hmm. on the planet and um we're gonna see where that takes us so it's fascinating to, to rewatch that because as a u2 fan i don't listen to them every day i don't listen to them every month even i go through phases but that's true of a lot of artists that i'm a fan of um there's almost nobody that i listen to day in and day out, month in and month out. And often months might go by while I'm like, when was the last time I listened to Jason Isbell, for instance? But in the course of the last couple of years, in part because of the other podcast I was thinking of doing, I re-listened to every U2 album. And I watched a lot of stuff that's out there on the internet. And it never occurred to me to go back and watch Rattle and Hum from start to finish. Even though over the years, there are parts of that movie that I've rewatched over and over and over. And there was a live album that came out that had some of the same performances from the movie, but some of what I think are the best performances from the movie were not on the album. So when I was in high school, I ripped those onto cassette so that I off off so from VHS to audio tape so that I could hit, just listen to those performances you know without having to to watch the movie and so watching the whole thing from start to finish last night and especially watching it with you and sort of trying but not trying too hard to maybe see it through your eyes was just a fascinating experience i realized that i didn't really have an adult view of that movie because I really hadn't watched the movie as an adult. I had just rewatched, you know, that performance of Sunday, Bloody Sunday, for instance, or that performance of Bad, which is one of my favorite songs of theirs. Um, I'd rewatch that. And I think I've said this before, but in grad school, when I took a film class, we watched the movie for the black and white cinematography, but we only watched, you know, parts of it. Um, cause I mean, I, th I don't know what you thought. I think Robert Brinkman, Robert Brinkman's black and white cinematography is gorgeous in the movie. Um, but yeah, that f watching it last night, I found probably about half of it ridiculous. Hmm. And I was shocked at the actual lack of po real political content because in a lot of ways it was you too that made me political when i was you know a kid right in early teens and it was probably rattle and hum more than anything else about them that that made me political and yet rewatching it last night 
there's not much pol- actual politics in it. Like there's some kind of cookie cutter, like pro Martin Luther King stuff. And there, of course there's that performance of Sunday, bloody Sunday, which does have a particular political message. And then there's some stuff about apartheid, which I suppose, you know, that's probably, that's probably how I learned about apartheid as much as any other way. You know, because I was probably 12 years old when I first saw Rattle and Hum. Uh, the performances still, for the most part, amaze me. Although I definitely, some of Bono, I mean, he's so, well, let me, let me, I'm kind of monologuing here. So uh, uh, give me, give me some of your thoughts. We can, I, we can go back and do an intro after we've just kind of gotten into this a little bit. I was interested uh, in how it opened, which, if I'm remembering correctly, really has them just sitting on their gear and uh, talking conversationally almost bashfully because they don't really know what to say. Uh, it's unclear exactly what the question was that was asked of them initially. And I was pleasantly surprised that it opened that way because I was then anticipating much, much more of that, uh, which I actually think might have served the film more if he had allowed for more of that to remain because you get a, you get an intimate view of what they're like when they're not performing. And what they're like when they're not playing rock stars. And uh, it was in some ways endearing to see them kind of awkward. Struggling to know how to be in an unscripted moment. Um, So when when it cut from that into performance and the ratio between those side uh, intimate conversational moments, scenes... Uh, to the actual performance, the ratio was fairly, I thought, even for maybe the first third of the film. And then it starts to lean more and more heavily in performance until it's full-blown performance. And I'd say what looked like uh, an E, what what looked like was going to be a consistent 50-50 split turned into more of like a 25-75 situation, 75% of it being performance, which uh, I grew. It's interesting, actually. I uh, I'm in. I always am curious about strong reactions in myself, saying more about me in some ways than whatever it is I'm consuming, or whatever it is that's provoking the response. But I did. I I couldn't help but note a sort of growing hostility <laughs> towards, uh, particularly Bono, which was interesting. I don't hate him. I don't love him. Um, I think there's a tendency to project a hell of a lot onto these people for different reasons. But some of the reasons are probably somewhat universal within Western society, just the ways that we all project things onto celebrities and the ways that we imagine ourselves as celebrities versus what actual celebrities are like. And it all gets mixed up. So I'm not sure I have a coherent uh, critique to level at Bono. All I can say is I was tracking a increasingly negative emotional response to what I was seeing. But you don't know why. Um, I did start to probe that a little bit 
over the course of uh, the day today, when I had a little more time and distance from the film, I think part of what I was responding negatively to was how dramatic the man is. But I think that that's about as fair as telling a track runner to cut the running out. I mean, he's a performer and uh, performers perform and he's clearly good at it. And he has, I think, probably a knack for uh, entering into certain roles or states on stage. I think that with the Berman piece for me, I like him at least uh, in a, I don't know if this is an abstract sense, but I like him in theory in part because he doesn't have that. I don't, and, and, and it might be unfair to then match, you know, maybe a, perceived authenticity in a Berman uh, compared to a perceived inauthenticity in a Bono because that stuff might come down to, at bottom, one person's inability to access that and another person's ability to access it in spades. And so I'm just trying to remain open to um, what I think I'm responding negatively to might not be exactly what I think I'm responding negatively to, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I don't think I realize the extent to which, you know, I, I try, I wish I could tell you the exact moment I first heard you two. Uh, I can't. And even the time in, in my life when they became my favorite band probably happened over about the course of a year, say between the ages of 12 and 13. And a big part of that was the album Octung Baby. But I think the second part of that was when I went to the mall and they had Rattle and Hum there in a VHS. And I I don't know that I'd ever even heard of it, but I was intrigued enough and I must have had some money with me because I bought it and I went home put it on, and put it on not really knowing what to expect. And the way the film opens is there's the Paramount logo and you hear the crowd. And then you hear this discordant guitar chord. And then the lights come up on a stage, a sparsely illuminated stage, it filmed in black and white, and the band launches into their cover of the Beatles song, Helter Skelter. And it's incredibly kinetic, uh, the way they move to the music, the way that Bono moves. Um, I had never seen anything like it. And this viewing, I did remain in awe of his voice. He is, an, especially at that time, an absolutely unreal singer, what he can do with his voice. And the sound of his voice, the sound of the band, but also the image of him throwing himself around stage that way made a huge impact on me at 12, 13, 14 years old when I was obviously at that age struggling with what the fuck to do with emotion mm -hmm. and was it I, and feeling of course as many teenagers do that i was feeling more intense emotions than anybody in my life mm -hmm. and bono in rattle and hum is the image of a man who is externalizing all of that mm. he looks constantly like he can't move enough like he can't scream loud enough like he can't sing with enough passion to get it all out and that was i think now i, I mean i knew that was formative but i think it was way more formative 
that I that I've ever realized. You are uh, responding positively to somebody who is very talented, but who's also uh, seemingly a natural with uh, expressing themselves in an uninhibited fashion, not afraid to put their emotions on display, and not afraid to um, be vulnerable in front of literally tens of thousands of people. Which again, right, like not to play Freudian on myself, but I was listening to Mark Marin's interview with Naomi Klein that he just conducted, I think this week, maybe last week, and she uh, confessed, which I thought was interesting, to being a repressed person and that being a public figure to some degree, not Bono level, but more than most, um, creates some tensions if you're somewhat repressed. I think I would self-identify as somewhat repressed. But, um, and so I bring that up because, again, there could be a kind of negative, like, not projection, but a kind of resentment, right? Like an envy, an unconscious envy where you're like, okay, what I'm responding to negatively is not, in fact, the histrionics of Bono. What it is is my own inability to access my own feelings that I then turn into a judgment on this rock star that seems to be able to access and express feelings totally uninhibitedly without any shame, shamelessly. There could be some truth in that, right? Uh, I'm open to the possibility that there's that's happening on some level. But I also think there's something else happening. I'm not going to let him off the hook completely. I think that what I I gradually came to find myself responding to in sort of a negative way was, it's so complicated, man. This is so complicated because part of me is going, the, folks that can hear that is the cat scratching my furniture. I've let I've let go of my furniture long ago. I think sometimes I don't know how to put this in non-mystical terms. The spirit is working through someone. And there's a reason why Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is continuously and eternally referenced. In part, it is an it is a significant and a historically important historical moment in the civil rights era in the United States. But I think there's something else happening in that speech that even 16-year-olds who are jaded, as they should be uh, on some level, when they watch that and listen to him, are connecting with something that is unmistakably powerful and potent. And I think it's clear that Bono has some of that. and not everyone does and without that turning into a a kind of because i think there's also a tendency to then place ascribe that much more value to bono than another human being and i fight against that uh in myself towards others and in general like i don't think that's a healthy way to be not only not healthy, I don't think it's in keeping with reality. Like if we, if you're trying to live in an ethical way, then you can't make a statement like, 
all human beings are valuable and treat that abstractly. I think it has to be treated concretely, it has to be lived. And so in theory, right, uh, Bono's just another guy, just like me. And just like someone on the street, like they encountered in Harlem when they listened to that guy playing music and seemed to be enjoying it and recognizing you can be talented and a street musician, maybe they're not, they weren't as big as he was today, but we, we watch this now, we're like, it's kind of incredible. Like imagine Bob Dylan watching street musicians play music and, and respecting them um, as in theory you should. Um, so I guess all of that's a roundabout way of trying to get at this, this tension I feel in myself as I watch Bono perform in this film where on the one hand, I'm like, what a fucking narcissist. Like, what a megalomaniac to seem to have no issue with telling an entire stadium full of people his political views. Or even to sing songs to that many people. It's sort of just like, it's so out of the realm of normal experience. It's hard to know how to relate to it. And yet, there's still, I think, within so many of us, um, for better or worse, and I'm open to this not being a Western European exclusive, but this is the culture I know, that we are fame obsessed and we uh, fantasize about fame and celebrity. And so there's just a lot happening as we take these sorts of figures and these sorts of images in. And I'm not trying to also say that my experience of this is somehow a cookie cutter experience that everyone has, but I think it's safe to say that many, many uh, Americans fantasize about being famous. And when we encounter scenes like a U2 playing to a stadium packed with people, there's a kind of uh, natural wonder what it's like to be on that stage. You're sort of living vicariously through these people. So there's there's like there's probably legitimate judgment, legitimate critique, there's envy, there's confusion, there's self-judgment, maybe, where you're like, why should we want this? In fact, this it's it's become a cliche how many how 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 frequently the the end of the road for these folks is uh, drug overdose or early death. So clearly it's not enough for so many. And maybe it's the wrong dream to be chasing after. Um, but these are just the things that are swirling around in me as I watch this film. I can tell you that for me at 12 or 13, or for me at 18 or 28, or even now in the case of what still remain my favorite moments in the film, I'm not thinking about fame at all. Mm. I, it's like a it's like a religious experience mm. um, to watch, to hear the music, to watch the movement, the adulation of the crowd. I guess plays into it. It's part of the experience, but it's more like the roar of approval that follows the performance is itself a part of the experience. Mm. Um, to see someone. You know, I think you used the word awkward a minute ago, but I don't remember in what context. But what I've realized recently is how awkward Bono is when he's not on stage. Hmm. Sometimes he's awkward when he's on stage. As he's gotten older, 
the 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 Bono and Rattle and Hum is in his twenties. He's got this lithe, cat-like kind of grace. I think in the way he moves. As he got older, he started to get his movement sort of started to get clunkier on stage, and some of the grace left him. And that seems to have been true in his persona as well. But even in Rattle and Hum, you can see it. Like he's more, far more comfortable on stage than I think he is off stage in a lot of ways. And I envied that ability to open up and to be vulnerable in front of people. But I don't, I really don't think that thoughts of fame really entered into it at mm. the time after the fact, maybe. And then the fame gets twisted up with it in really unhealthy ways. And then you, the whole parasocial relationship thing developing. But you are, you have been a teacher which is which is at a basic level quite performative and so have I and so we know what it's like to be in front of a crowd not of 50,000 but of <laughs> arguably the toughest audience most people uh, have nightmares about yeah. and we did it every day for years Sun Devil Stadium has nothing on a room full of angry and tired 15 year olds i mean you know of course there's a little hyperbole but there's some truth in that too actually like i think for some actually it'd be more horrifying to do what we did than to get in front of a thousand people and give a speech yeah so just <clears throat> out of curiosity do you feel like you were able to over time because i've seen you teach and you strike me or you struck me as natural did you feel able to be and also like we need to keep in mind what our roles are right like you're not a rock star in a classroom you're a teacher and you're not their friend uh you're also not their parent but you're a little closer to that than a rock star with that being said uh, especially in a humanities class where you're dealing with uh the deepest questions of what it means to be a human being you're going to enter into vulnerable stuff and I think some of the most uh, powerful educational moments are when teachers are able to let their hair down a little bit in a professional, but in a human way and speak to something true. Do you feel like you were able to do that with your students? Yes. And performance was a part of it. And the, but it, and you may have experienced this too, but there's a thing that happens. And you can't always consciously make it happen, but sometimes you can consciously make it happen. Where you're in the classroom and you're teaching and you're performing. And in the performance, you discover a truth and an ability to communicate that you would not have otherwise discovered. In some ways, you feel as though you're transcending yourself and it makes you feel more like yourself. Definitely. But... There's also an element, and this wore off for me, but as I got older, but especially as when I was a younger teacher, when I would realize that I was getting good at it, or when I realized I have my audience in the palm of my hand right now, yeah, you get a thrill from it. And you there is a little bit of like um, you know, especially when you can tell like which students are fans of yours. Because that's <laughs> what it's like. Like the you know, you're, when you're a student, you're- Which f- ones come to the front of the class? Exactly. Who's sitting at the front? Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the kids that linger after class to talk to you or, you know, when I was a younger teacher, I would sometimes have female students who would pretty openly flirt with me 
whether just to get better grades or not, it doesn't matter. Like you're getting, you're on the receiving end of some of the behavior. You're on the receiving end of some of the behavior that is associated with being a public figure, mm -hmm. being a celebrity of kind. So yeah, if it's, if that's, if you, as a teacher, if you have to think about how to balance that kind of thing, then how impossible does it become to balance when you're as big as Bono is? But at the same time, what I said about performance like still stands. It's like the way I that I talk about like artifice or tricks in other kinds of art. The greatest writing out there is it all of it, the stuff that is the most deeply true. All of it is the result of a kind of parlor trick which has been mastered. And that does not trivialize it to me. That elevates it. And so I feel the same way about on-stage performance and music in a lot of ways. It's like we've all... Because I've thought about, like, why do I... Why do we go to live music shows, right? Like... If you think about it, it's a weird, I mean, if you think about anything enough, it's a weird thing, but like, we already know the songs. They're probably going to sound better and clearer if we play them on our home stereo or in our car. We're not going to get to hang out with the musicians that we're fans of. We're probably going to be uncomfortable because we're going to be standing for a long time or we're going to be claustrophobically surrounded by a crowd. It's going to be hard to get to the bathroom. It's going to be time-consuming to get up and get a drink. Um, we have no control over what songs are going to be played or how they're going to be played. And yet we, we love going to live shows. And I'm, I'm no exception, although I probably love it a little bit less now than I did when I was younger. And I, I actually I shouldn't speak for you. I know you've seen uh, Silver Jews, but I actually don't know much about your experience with going to musical shows otherwise. I mean, you just perfectly encapsulated why I don't like going to them. Okay. Uh, I very, I, I find them, especially big ones, like I wound up at a three-day festival in Vegas, Vegas, which was uh, torture for me. I fucking hated it for different reasons. But yeah, I mean, it's um, it's been very, there have been very few performances that I've uh, attended that I liked and uh, the ones that I did tended to be more in much more intimate. And so actually I'm not much of a concert goer for the reasons you just described. I find it, um, almost intolerable unless it's, uh, a very special musician that I am willing to put up with all that for, or a venue that surprises me that uh, provides a kind of environment that's not oppressive. But uh, no, I don't. I, I have not been to many live shows, and those are reasons why. Right. You did a good job. That was a good Thank list. You. Thank you. I am a concert goer, although as I as I said, probably a little bit less of one now than I used to be. But I've, I've been to a lot of shows in my life, big ones and small ones, and. You're maybe a little bit of an exception as far as the average person goes. We seem to like this. It's a thing that we like doing, going to performances. We like going to performances in general. And I think it's because I, I don't think if you if you talk to the people who are in line outside an arena to get into a U2 show, I don't think many of them are there 
to see the fame of those men in person, right? Sure. Like, I've been front row at a U2 concert before. I've been like six feet from Bono while he's performing. And I had moments where I would kind of step out of myself and being like, well, no, like that's Bono right there. Like you're literally, you know, if you push this gate aside, you could reach out and grab his hand. That's he's really singing in front of you right now. But I had to force myself to have those moments. Mostly what I was doing when I was six feet away from you too, was I was enjoying the performance Mm -hmm. because at its best performance, like I said about, trickery or artifice or something in writing or in poetry performance has the ability to get at some kind of truth hmm. that cannot be gotten at other ways and that's why we go to see performers and that's why there, there's probably when you're walking down the street and you linger in front of the one of those street performers that act might not be as different from going to a bruce springsteen concert as you think it is see this is the thing though like i don't know for me and this is maybe strange but i feel like i reach that kind of transcendence in the privacy of my home or in my car with that music i don't feel uh, maybe this is a byproduct of not having been to many concerts or having a natural allergy to large crowds i don't like it i don't like being in the thick of that kind of a mass of people. Um, but with the exception of actually Berman at the Echoplex in 2008, I did see, uh, what's his name? Phil Elverum play a very, very intimate venue in LA once. I'm trying to think of any other performances that were like, that I really loved and was glad I was present for. Um, I've seen, you know, I've seen some flamenco music played in a very intimate setting but i don't know i just don't i don't feel that same i understand i understand i'm not i'm not gonna play dumb at um uh pretending to not get why the live performance is special compared to a recording but i don't know i just i don't feel uh i don't pine after a live performance even with the musicians i love I mean, of course, if Berman were alive today and I found out he was playing in Albuquerque tomorrow, if, if I had all kinds of things going on tomorrow, I would figure out how to get there for sure. Um, but it's just so private for me, like my relationship to m- the music I love that um, I, I relish the connection as a private, intimate thing, which... I don't know. That's just me. But I've never really I've never really had an issue with cultivating that relationship uh through my speakers, if that makes sense. It does, although I do feel like I should point out it's still a performance that you're enjoying. Definitely. Oh, I'm I'm with you right. there. I'm with you there. And for my part, because I'm I am very similar in a lot of ways and a lot of my most profound and memorable experiences with music have been me by myself either sprawled on a floor with headphones on or maybe in my car with the music turned up really loud and yet i am still drawn to go and see these performers and hear the music live and 
I wonder if there is something in the communal aspect of it that even a sort of solipsistic sort of person like me, maybe I get some kind of contact high off of that that kind of environment. I don't know. Well, it's interesting. I mean... <laughs> There's got to be a lot of people that either struggle so much with the crowd thing that they don't go to shows themselves, or a lot of people that actually struggle with the crowd thing but push through that because they care so much about being there for that musician or for that band to witness that performance. Um, And I think on some level it must feel good actually to turn to your left and your right in front of and behind you and go, okay. I might not get along with most of these people um, in many ways, and I probably wouldn't want them as my friends and vice versa. Not for any smug reason, just because uh, it's not that simple. But there's a little bit of pleasure or a little bit of, um, I think, community, right, that is there where you're like, okay, we all are here at least, at the very least, because we all like this music. And that does bind us together in a way that is special and maybe not superficial. Although I do remember, like, I don't know if you ever had this experience. It can be kind of strange to be at a concert venue, turn to your left and your right, turn in front of and behind you, see people mouthing words to songs you know as well to the level of memorizing them. And be like, these are the folks that like this music. Because sometimes they're not exactly who you expect. I don't know if I'm expecting to see myself multiplied a thousand times. That sounds horrifying. But there is, there have been a couple moments where I'm like, this is very strange and a little bizarre to realize like how uh, disparate the music demographics can be that all love the same band. Yeah, and it, it also can be alarming when that comes from like, I'm a big fan of the band, the drive by truckers um, who are very political band, very left leaning political band. And that has been clear in their They've been around for a long time, over 20 years. And those political inclinations have been clear in their music pretty much from the beginning. And if anything, they've gotten more and more explicit as the years have gone on. Right. I mean, they were their stage backdrop, was a Black Lives Matter banner long before that became trendy, right? And yet, I've seen shows where this Patterson Hood, one of the lead singers, will have to tell the Republican hecklers to knock it off. You're a Republican, and you're coming to a drive-by trucker show. And you think you're not going to hear left-wing politics? Like, have you never listened to their music before? Or are you just so dumb that you don't understand what their songs are about? And those people are never a a majority at a trucker show, but they're there. And then you think, God, these people are writing these songs (laughs) with these um, humanistic political messages, and people are out there grooving to them, and they're not getting it at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, for all that I can, we can go on and on about like the transcendent truth of performance and 
any given audience, there's a fraction of it that is not getting what's happening at all. Yeah, I struggle with this too, because looking at like um, the musicians from the 1960s that I would say if there were ever a moment, right? I mean, arguably without even, I mean, how many times have you heard people your dad's age that were in their late teens, early 20s at the peak of that musical, you know, apex saying, and probably rightly so, it was the best fucking moment in American music history, certainly in rock history, and we'll probably never get back there. And even I can listen with all the gaps in my knowledge to the all-timers and nod my head and go, yeah, they're right. This is fucking unmistakably excellent. And there's a lot of reasons for it that are both, uh, I think, uh, explicitly, what would you say, uh, self-evident? And ones that are more mysterious and will probably forever remain somewhat mysterious. But, you know, I listened to uh, The Grateful Dead, which, as we both know, you certainly more than I, that the hardcore deadheads, I mean, that's a level of religiosity. And I mean that with, uh, with, with, uh, with admiration, really. I don't have any issue with this, but the extent of the knowledge base going from not just recorded but to concert albums and all these other ephemeral esoteric things that you're going to get into Mm. if you're going to get deep down a deadhead rabbit hole you say cornell 77 and think that you sound cool and they look at you like you just mentioned that you're a fan of britney spears yeah there you go and i don't even know what that i mean you're clearly 10 layers deeper than i've ever gotten but okay so i'm going to reveal my the 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 uh what would you call this uh what's the name of that when you when you're so shitty in math and you go to college and they make you take remedial remedial this is remedial deadhead shit i was listening to just the classic recording master recording of ripple although i should probably not even say master recording because someone's going to be like well which one or you know which version no i think i think you can ripples it's, it's okay it's pretty safe yeah. so there's this there's the line in ripple that says let there be songs to fill the air Mm -hmm. and in and i interpret that as a non-child of the 60s or a 20 something of the 60s as a beautiful line like yeah if there were more songs like ripple when i'm singing along to ripple maybe we wouldn't be fucking getting involved in wars and maybe this would um stand a chance at um chipping away at bigotry and racism and some of the poisons that are in our society. And I think they have actually, although it's hard to quantify that. Right. But yeah, then there's another side of me that goes, give me a fucking break. You know, like uh, it didn't work and it hasn't worked. And my cynical side goes, you could make a million ripples and they could be equally brilliant. And we're still going to fuck this up because we do. And uh, maybe that's me when I'm grumpy, right? But it's an interesting question, like back to Rattle and Hum, one of the, which bandmate was it that said, you know, this distinction or this statement that that music should not mess with politics or that music shouldn't be political? Adam. Okay. And he said, that was a drummer, right? Bassist. Bassist. Sorry. Bassist. And, he, and then he follows it up with, that's fucking bullshit. I agree with him. I think that is bullshit. It's a ridiculous uh, line to draw. There's no reason why music can't be political. And I think we have 
evidence, even if it's not quantitative, that music can change minds, change people's hearts, impact their behavior, maybe uh, do a little bit uh, in making the world a more humane place. But music is not going to save us, although I wish it. And there's a little part of me that wishes that were true or still wants to believe that that's possible somehow as naive as that sounds that you can just get, you could just hit enough people right in the heart with incredible music that is humane and, and, and transcendent that we're gonna, we're gonna root this shit out of ourselves. But no, you know, I mean, there's conservative deadheads. Yeah. And by, I mean, of course there are, there's any kind of person you can think of exists, of course, but they're not an extreme minority and there are noted figures on the right who are vocal admirers of the dead. And that picturing like major Bitcoin transactions being made while ripples playing in the background. (laughs) That's probably a totally fair. (laughs) That's probably a totally fair image to have in your head. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's on some level, it's not that the dead songs are political. They're not, I can't really think of a single political grateful dead song off the top of my head, but Obviously, these people are not voting for Donald Trump and watching Tucker Carlson, you know. Although Jerry Rubin did become a Wall Street uh, investor. This is. uh, Yeah, and God knows what happened to Eldridge Cleaver and on and on it goes. But, you know, it's cognitive dissonance on some level. But if you can go to dead shows and actually be a part of that culture and listen to that music that music that is so fundamentally non-aggressive, right? right There's right. nothing remotely aggressive in the Grateful Dead's music. Right. And still insist that your conservative interpretation of the world is correct and also congruous or congruent with the Grateful Dead's vision of the world. Right. Then there is no hope for you. You know, there is a simple, I think, but obvious part of this that we overlooked that we should at least touch on briefly, which is just that there's a lot of joy in watching somebody do something well. I remember, I have no idea what the best concert I ever saw was, but if you asked me to pick one, I would usually say Leonard Cohen. And I saw him in 08 or 09, kind of at the beginning of his epic um, you know, world tour that lasted for so much of his later years. And I went because my dad bought me a ticket. They were expensive and I probably wouldn't have gone on my own because I wouldn't have had any expectation that Leonard Cohen at that age would have been a particularly good performer. And so it was the best possible scenario because I walked into it with relatively low expectations, but unspoken hopes, I guess. And then I was absolutely just gobsmacked by the performance that he gave and he did that night after night and it's you know it's captured on the the records from that tour but part of the time i think i was just experiencing the thrill of watching him be really good at what he was doing even though so many of these were songs that i knew so many of these were songs that meant a lot to me songs that i'd grown up with but that joy extended also to the songs that i wasn't familiar with right um and just watching him 
and his band be so good at what they were doing. There's a kind of joy in that that maybe bypasses some of the other stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like without having been to a Cohen concert myself, because I like his music so much that I would have connected in much the same way you're describing. I just can't, I'm going to be honest, I I don't like you too. <laughs> I can't connect with that music. Um, so again, as much as I'm willing to uh, fairly or unfairly psychoanalyze myself to try to take some of the heat off of perhaps unfairly harsh critiques of Bono. And I do think it does wind up uh, being directed pretty much exclusively towards Bono. I just can't stand him, man. I can't stand him. I don't know what it, that's a little harsh. I can, I can stand him, but I almost can't. It's right on the line. It, 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 it vacillates. Like at the beginning, I was actually changing my orientation towards him in part because of those unscripted, uh, intimate moments between him and the band where I got to see a different side of him that I liked. There's something about the performing Bono that I don't like. Um, and I don't think I'm, I would be fair to myself if I made it all about some kind of latent self-loathing. Cause I don't think that's all that's going on. I think what's going on is I'm reacting to something that's bothering me in him. And I don't think it's just unhealthy. I think there's something legit that I'm responding to that, I don't like, and um, I'd need to spend a little more time with what that is exactly, and I, I don't want that to feel personal. I hope you don't feel like that's a personal thing. Not remotely. Okay, good. Uh, you fucking asshole. Uh, you know, this no, stuff is very, no, I know. very intimate. No, it, no, so it, it is. I and get how that works. No, man. no, I, no I, 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 was, I, I was kidding. But yeah, I, yeah no. I get how that works. Um. You know what I think it is, to be honest? I mean, if, I ha- if I'm going to do like a quick off the cuff, here's what bothers me with Bono. And it's the performer. I really want to make that clear. It's the performing Bono, not necessarily the private Bono, as we came to know him, however little we could possibly glean from the, the intimate, unscripted stuff. I don't do well with this kind of maximum confidence shit i struggle with it um i like underdogs i like even if they themselves are kind of underdogs because you gave me some of the biographical background about everyone other than edge actually coming from pretty humble backgrounds and i've got utmost respect for the stratospherically difficult task of you don't get there without a lot of luck but also a tremendous amount of talent and that is unmistakable. I can't take that away from them. No one can. And if they don't, I'm sure they know that for themselves. And if they don't, there's no saving those folks because I, I think they must know. But there's something with the Bono hyperconfidence. It's the same issue I have with Bernadine Dorn. You know, there, huh. there's a moment in the, and maybe there's actually performance in those communiques, right? 
Like, is that actually Bernadine Dorn or is that Bernadine Dorn as she thinks she needs to be in this particular moment as a political radical, as a revolutionary? This is what a revolutionary does. This is how a revolutionary speaks. This is, in spite of how Bernadine feels inside, what Bernadine must say on mic in order to um, make sure that the left that needs cohesion and a feeling of being emboldened maintains cohesion and confidence. Who knows, right? But um, I just don't relate well to uh, that kind of... I don't know. There's a little, I don't know if it's like I need someone with a chip on their shoulder, but I need someone, I don't know, that's a little more wounded. And I know it's tricky because like he's doing some very vulnerable things. I mean, as you talked about with, I mean, when we watch Sunday Bloody Sunday, I think there's an argument to be made that's valid that you can't actually access those kinds of emotions on stage if there's not a leaning into vulnerability. But there's some weird combo with him where it's like the vulnerability is combined with a kind of hyperconfidence that I find unpalatable. That's about as good as I can do right now. I was with you up until your comment about chip on the shoulder and being wounded. I think one of the biggest critiques that's been leveled at Bono over the years is that he has a chip on his shoulder the size of the Grand Canyon. Interesting. And I think he's obviously deeply wounded person. Interesting. And that part of that woundedness is what drew me mm. to the music, the very his voice, the very first time that I heard it. Having said, and there may be no accounting for that, but when you were talking about, okay, it's the same thing that you feel about Bernadine Dorn, the first thing I thought was, what about Malcolm X? What about Fred Hampton? Right. I mean, these guys, these guys were... Okay, in ready? control at all moments of everything they were saying and the way they were saying it. And it yeah. was very, very conscious. Yeah, yeah. All right, I got the next one for you. Maybe you help me get at it. Although I'm suspicious of this word um, because I think just like Berman's line in Nights That Won't Happen, uh, what's the line? It's something like, uh, and as much as we might want to seek the real and hit rewind something like that and i read the real or i or i retranslate the real as authenticity there's a cult that we've built around authenticity on the left um but i think in general where we distinguish or we make these distinctions that are seemingly clean cut between the authentic and the inauthentic and we're always striving after the authentic, whether that be in consumption or in our own uh, true selves. You know, back to when you hear this, this sort of uh, the existential agony of just be yourself, man. And you're like, go fuck yourself. What does that even fucking mean? But I think at bottom, there's a little bit of like, be authentic. Be who you really are. When I watch Malcolm X give his speeches, when I watch, uh, when I watch, who's the other person you mentioned? Hampton. Hampton give his speeches. I actually do. I am convinced as the audience member that that is, there's something authentic happening there. 
it's real. I might have a bit of doubt with Bono where I'm like, the performance is so perform me, perform ish. I don't know what the word is, but there's something else happening in that for me where where I'm not doubting for a second, even if, as you put it, there's a parlor trick at all times with performance, no matter what. I don't doubt for a second when I watch Malcolm X or when I listen to Fred Hampton that that is the real deal happening. And there were, I don't know what's going on with me with Bono, where there is a flicker of like, is this really what this is? Or is this kind of halfway real and halfway something else? There's some kind of internal antennae, right, that gets uh, fuzzy in a way that it doesn't with the others. And that could, and it's so fucking subjective. So I have no idea. I'm not uh, here pretending to be the, objective uh, measuring rod of authenticity but for me there's something in him in the bono persona in the bono performance that rubs me wrong in a way that malcolm x and uh, hampton never did so one of the most interesting things watching the film last night was that I started to wonder if I've become less of a U2 fan than I used to be. There are moments in the movie that struck me as ridiculous Mm -hmm. that probably when I was younger, they struck me as ridiculous, but in a way that I was able to just gloss over like endearing almost. Yeah. That watching now, like his his speech during Bullet the Blue Sky, I can't tell the difference between ABC News, Hill Street Blues, and a preacher from the old time gospel hour stealing money from the sick and the old. Well, the God I believe isn't short of cash, mister. And I feel a long way from the hills of San Salvador. I was like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, man. Like, and, But it wasn't that I thought it was insincere. It was that I thought it was facile. Naive, even naive, yes, yeah, yeah. And even then, I mean, they're they're like twenty six years old. There's nothing wrong with being naive sure. at that age, sure, you know. Sure, but shallow, yeah, shallow. There, there's a <clears throat> there's a surprising lack of depth in. I think sometimes the lyrics that he thinks are his deepest. Hmm. I don't think there's a surprising lack of depth in his lyrics in general. And in fact, one of the most charming mo- moments, I think you even chuckled at this, was when they're hanging out with B.B. King and they're going over the lyrics to When Love Comes to Town and B.B. King says, you're mighty young to be writing such heavy lyrics. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Um, and then a little while later, he says, a lot of emotion there, young man, a lot of emotion. That's okay. I couldn't help also but think we saw B.B. King on General Hospital in the Oakland Dram House where we stayed, Dallas, from Silver Juice Song. Silver Juice Song references B.B. King. Oh, oh, right, right. Okay, sorry. Yes, it does. Um, (laughs) Nice. Yes, very nice tie-in. There was something that just as an older man wasn't doing it for me. And yet, at the same time, so after we... We watched the movie, you went to bed, I stayed up for a while. Yeah. And I was thinking through this, like, am I finally becoming less of a U2 fan? But at the same time that I was thinking that, I had a song stuck in my head. And it was not a song from the movie, but it was a U2 song from their last album, um, Songs of Experience, which I want to say was 2018, thereabouts. Mm -hmm. Um, Song called uh, 13 
parentheses there is a light just just this gorgeous song and i hadn't listened to it in ages but it was in my head last night so i had this fascinating moment of being like am i kind of turning against bono finally after all these years while one of his songs is in my head in a good way right and and i i always remember this scene and and we i think once or twice we've mentioned salinger on this podcast and very very, very problematic human being, very good writer. But in um, well, Christ, Franny and Zoe or Raise High the Roof Beam, Carpenters, he it tells the story of a, a snobbish music listener who uh, is, is full of uh, absolute dismissiveness about popular music and then leaves work in a really good mood <laughs> and walks home down the street whistling a pop song mm. without even realizing that he's doing it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I felt a little bit like that guy. And I've always aspired at the same time not to be that guy, mm. right? Like I can, you know, I <laughs> I spent part of my life pouring over the librettos to Bach oratorios. And I, I can talk to you about the development of polyphony in, in you know, Western music during the Renaissance and talk to you about motets by a, you know, obscure Flemish composer that nobody's ever heard of anymore. But I'm also a U2 fan, right? I've never, I've always tried to distance myself from that kind of like um, snobbishness. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But having said that, I understood why, Watching Rattle and Hum, I still think I still think it never got enough credit for the quality of the performances in it. I still think those are most of those, not all of them, but most of those or many of them are amazing to watch. I was but, very impressed with Is it the Edge or just Edge? Well, I mean it was a childhood nickname. Um so technically I think it's the Edge, but usually people just call him Edge. Okay. Like you wouldn't be like, hey, the Edge. Although Bono sometimes makes a point of doing that. Well, I it was I don't think we ever saw the edge in any moment actually get edgy, which I was impressed by for real. Like there was something I mean, clearly stoic about him. Mm -hmm. I would even say uh, deeply introverted. Um, but you could also read a there was a clear discipline there, and I think I commented to you at one point. They're in their uh, they're in their uh, RV. You know, oh, before the San Francisco yeah, concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've seen enough documentaries on huge musical acts that before starting the show, those same, uh, what are they called? The talent RVs. What's the actual term for those things? I feel like there's a freaking, there's a name for this. Anyway, whatever. They're all partying in the other films. I mean, uh, not all, but it's like, it's a cliche, but it's it's true. Like, it's like, holy shit, it's astounding any of these people last six months when they reach this level of uh, of fame. But you go into that one, uh, as we saw it, and they're literally just looking over their uh, lyric sheets. They're having totally uh, just matter-of-fact discussions about how to proceed. I think I turned to you and was like, this is crazy like they're stone cold sober and they're just focused and I, I i was impressed by that and i do think edge as i know nothing about them right i don't know anything about the lore or the facts or the bios but 
he struck me as one of those just like I'm working mm-hmm. and um, yeah. things are not going to get in the way of my work. Yeah. Um, and I definitely respected that. And it's yeah. obvious, I mean, just how insanely talented he is at playing his instrument. That said, I did understand why when Rattle and Hum came out, it was largely dismissed, even by critics who were very, um, who liked U2 a lot. Mm. Like it, um, and even among U2 fans, I don't know that it would be fair to say that it has a cult following. Um, there are people who love it, and but then people who are largely indifferent to it. And I, watching it straight through from start to finish, like it's a, as a movie, it does not work at all. And that, that is not their fault. That's the fault of the filmmaker who I think, couldn't quite figure out where he was going to go with this. The band wanted it to be one thing and it kind of grew out of their hands. And I think that scene early on where he's Phil Joanu is asking them questions and they cannot answer them and they're being really self-conscious. He says, I knew this would never work, but then that's it. Then the movie like drops that afterwards. It's like, that was, well, we tried that one time and you guys aren't really good at this. So we're going to go in a different direction. And the movie really suffers because of that. And there's these really facile touches that I don't think the band is responsible for. Like Bono sings a song. You don't know it from the lyrics, but it's called MLK. That's the sleep tonight and may your dreams be realized. Really simple little song. And it's just Bono singing it. But then, you know, the film cuts to this image of MLK's face. And it's very like, I just rolled my eyes when that happened, you know? Um, It's also interesting, right? Irish bandmates. I know this has clearly been done to death, but like Irish bandmates making sense of and like and and sort of giving their weird rendition of american history through their music like as they understand american culture american history there is something very sort of bizarre about it actually that was actually the biggest criticism of rattle and hum when it came out Mm -hmm. was that people said it's like they're explaining the blues to america right and they I, I don't I and I understand how you could read it that way. I do not even now I don't read it that way. They were Irish. They were young. Uh I, Ireland is a very different place than America. Mm-hmm. And um they didn't grow up with the blues. They grew up with punk and opera and Irish folk music. And their music, if you listen to their early records, you can hear there's no they're not like the Rolling Stones or the Clash or something. They didn't start out playing blues-based songs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when they did finally turn their attention to America, I find it kind of delightful because, like, there's that press conference that we see like one minute of, where the a reporter is asking them about like what's it like being an American, being around American music, and Bono's like, "Well, I have to tell you about this." So we went to Sun Studios, and it's like. It was a barbershop and it was this and it was that. And, but the original recording, we went in there and we recorded a bunch of songs, right? And Bono's saying it because he's like, he's like a kid. He's like, this is really fucking cool, man. And it's easy as an American to be like, yeah, we know. Like, w- we know Sun Studios is still there. Although I suspect, in fact, a lot of people probably did not know that. Like, they were, a lot of Americans were probably learning that as well, watching that. But I, I understand why you would, people could react that way. Like, Oh, they now they're not satisfied with having conquered the world with their music. Now they're going to come over here to America and explain American music to Americans, or they're going to like hook up with black artists like they think they're black or whatever. Even though, again, Irishness and whiteness has a really interesting and complicated history. Um, 
you know, and Bono writes a song about Billie Holiday and he manages to throw in John Coltrane and Miles Davis and he puts Birdland on the wrong street in Manhattan. And I get it. It's still a really fun song and, and totally reverent. Um, yeah. I mean, okay. Two things. One is I actually didn't even know what he was responding, what he's talking about when he's talking about the, uh, what was the thing with the cowboy hat? He goes on this big monologue about uh, what was that? No, not a cowboy hat. Cowboy Jack Clement. No, no, he's the- wearing a cowboy hat in multiple scenes. Yes. That's what I'm referring to. Yes, he was cosplaying America at the time. Yes, right. But what was the whole monologue he went on that you had uh, mentioned previously in this conversation, where he's saying, where you you know maybe thought even at 18 this is fairly ridiculous but he's trying to make a political statement here i can't tell the difference between abc news Hill Street yeah that news whole thing what do you make of that whole hour. what's going on in that uh <laughs> so this, monologue. this song is bullet the blue sky okay okay and what it's actually about is u.s intervention in central america okay okay specifically in el salvador if you listen to the lyrics of bullet the blue sky you might or might not be able to piece that together. It's kind of like a stream of consciousness kind of song. Like one minute you seem to be in a place that's being bombed, but the next minute there's a man with a saxophone. So the lyrics are kind of elliptical, right? But that's that's what it's about is U.S. intervention in Central America. And part of the monologue is the song when he says, see the sky ripped open, see the rain pouring through the gaping wound, pelting the women and children. That's part of the song. But he leads into it with this monologue about a televangelist, how he was in his hotel room and everything that's on TV, whether it's the news or whether it's the cop show Hill Street Blues or whether it's a preacher is all the same shit. And that the preacher then is taking advantage of people, you know, the God I believe isn't short of cash. So it doesn't really fit together. There's another problem, right? And this to me actually might really actually you have helped me figure out what exactly it is that bothers me with him as he's criticizing uh, self-interested, uh, self-serving preachers. He's preaching. It's obnoxious. He is a preachy dude. Um, and maybe that's what I don't like is there's a preachy quality to him that rubs me the wrong way and he seems to be uh, convinced of his own truth saying abilities and in the in in being so taken in by his own performance he ceases to register the irony that he's preaching about inauthentic preachers i think he's constantly aware of the irony oh is he yeah okay I mean, it, it didn't w- seem that at way. one point in the film he cuts himself off in the middle of the actually a much, much better monologue in the song Silver and Gold. He says, am I bugging you? I don't mean to bug you. And then he cuts himself off and tells Edge to play the guitar solo. And he's, there's, his lines, his lyrics are full of lines like, um, it's hard to listen while you preach. Um, I thought I heard the captain's voice, but it's hard to listen while you preach. He's constantly doing stuff like that. Um, you don't see that though as like, I mean, it could be the same stuff, like the, the stuff we were told as children that, that has truth to it, which is the very thing you're reacting most negatively to is the thing that you, you know, despise most in yourself. No, I think there is truth in that. 
and and maybe and I don't know how I it's very hard for me but fascinating for me at, at, as an adult now to try to speak from adult me not just adult me but adult me in this moment in my life but also 12 year old me who contributed to me being adult me you know and it, so it's very hard for me to to sort of combine all those perspectives but I think part of what drew me to him was the fact that he seemed compelled to say it anyway. Hmm. And I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the idea that, um, okay, sure, we some of what makes us angriest is the stuff that we see in ourselves, mm -hmm. right? And there is truth in that to a point, but um, – do I when I when I think about uh, rape, for instance, someone violently sexually abusing someone else, and I get so mad? Do I think it's because I see that in myself? I really don't think that's mm -hmm. what it is. What about like? I mean, I don't know enough about whichever politicians he's befriended. All but, of them? Like, did he... He's friends with Obama, right? Probably. I mean, this is... I, I don't know. I don't want to then misspeak. You don't know? If he oh, is no, he's he probably friends with Obama. I'd be surprised if he was not friends with Obama. Do you happen to know if they interacted, just period? Because I don't want to... They I, did. I do know that they interacted, yes. Okay. So, if he's willing to be in a room with someone who uh, apparently ramped up drone strikes more than any other president and wound up with however many number of untold civilian casualties as a result. And, uh, at 26, he's railing against, uh, whatever it is he's railing against with the U S imperialism. And, um, I don't know what to do with that other than, uh, scratch my head and go, well, of course, uh, no one is, we change and that's fine. And it's actually the way it has to be. We're not, uh, it would be, uh, maybe more disturbing. Like sometimes I actually feel like, I don't know if you remember watching the Bernie campaign commercials, but they use this, um, this, not a trick, but they use this, uh, technique to drive home the point that Bernie's consistent in ways that these other politicians aren't, which is they showed footage of him like 1983, 1985. Sure. And it's, yeah. and he's like railing in front of the legislature and he's giving the same goddamn speech every time. Right, right. There's a part of me that's like, right the fuck on. Yeah, that's course. impressive. And yeah. then there's another part of me that's like, Jesus Christ, I don't know if I've ever encountered a, an actual human that maintained the same narrative for 50 fucking years. Right. Yeah. Um, I understand like you could keep the fundamentals and uh, remain consistent, but to be that consistent was a little shocking, but this is very different from the Bono at 26. Who's mm -hmm. talking about U S bombs dropping in San Salvador mm -hmm. uh, or is it El Salvador? I don't want San Salvador San. is the capital of El Salvador. And uh, discussing, I actually don't know much about the IRA, and I don't want to misspeak because my knowledge is literally zilch, right? But right. these are like impassioned uh, political outbursts that are purportedly uh, of the leftist variety. And 
flash forward to an older jet setting Bono mm-hmm. and you are literally cozying up with neoliberals who are using drones to drop bombs mm-hmm. on civilians. So yeah. that's a different situation than a Bernie Sanders thing, right? The, in that where there might be a little bit of um, poking fun at him for how little he changed. I think there might be reason to critique Bono for how much he's changed. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. And it was a transition that was very confusing and painful for me as a U2 fan to watch. Although I think I have more insight about it now than I did then. And I think, I think what he realized at some point was that his speechifying on stage wasn't doing a damn bit of good. And he realized that he had access to politicians and the way that a lot of it started from what I understand was he was lobbying for um, debt relief and the availability of anti-HIV drugs in sub-Saharan Africa, and which was a cause that was personal for him. And there, he found a lot of receptive audience members in, in the U.S. Congress, but his biggest holdout was... I. I almost misspoke and said Strom Thurmond, but not Strom Thurmond. What's his fuck? Uh, Jesse um... Pinkman, <laughs> Eisenberg, old, long dead now. Uh, old Republican piece of shit. You're not. You're not. This isn't ringing a bell for you. Jesse Helms. Yeah, I thought it was Helms. All right. Yeah, I believe this was Jesse Helms. It could have been Strom Thurmond. It doesn't matter for the purposes of the conversation. Deeply homophobic, AIDS is a punishment for this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And Bono went in there and talked to the man and literally had him in tears. And he agreed to support the bill and the bill passed. And that's a testament to Bono's skills as a as a one-on-one persuasive person or charismatic person, right? And I think that he had experiences like that where he realized that he could actually affect change if he worked within the system instead of shit talking the system from without, which is a perpetual dilemma mm-hmm. for the left, mm-hmm. right? The purity test too. Yes, the yeah, purity test. Definitely. And I think that at some point that took over the way that he saw the world at the same time that his his wealth was meaning that he was going to move in those social circles anyway and what better way to justify that to yourself than by telling yourself that you're fighting the good fight by continuing to work within the system i do know that it was a huge problem within the band that interesting the edge was furious with him for meeting with george w bush for instance yeah and i think it very nearly caused the breakup of the band and at some point they sort of reached an agreement was which was like you stop going over to George Bush's house for playdates. Well, <laughs> I think it was like we're going to let you go over to George Bush's house for playdates, but we're not going to be a part of that. We are going to be the band that is on the stage playing the song. If you want to do that in your free time, then you can go do that. So I'm not, but I'm not going to defend Bono palling around with George Bush or Barack Obama or. I think the last U2 show I was at, I think Nancy Pelosi was there and I think he called her out like, hi, Nancy, kind of a deal. 
Um, Which is so hypocritical at a certain point. If you are, for instance, I don't know much about this, nor do I care. This is for People Magazine, not for our podcast. But if you are making millions of dollars, maybe on the daily, and with that kind of money, you have uh, money managers that are figuring out how to make sure you keep as much of it as possible with all kinds of tax loopholes and breaks. Yes. As you're calling out Nancy Pelosi at your show, you've surrendered your integrity in my mind. You know what? And I, I'm not going to argue with you about that. I, I, I could push back a little bit because I ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think Bono is uh narcissistic. I think he's a, a bit of a megalomaniac and I think he's, um, someone with a lot of money and power and that very rarely does anything good for anybody's moral compass. Mm. Um, but I hear you and my objections are not significant enough to push back. Um, Just for those kinds of call outs, like fine, man, if you want to be like, there's nothing, be a cigar smoking, a cigar chomping <laughs> capitalist, right? Yeah. It's fine. Like Bob Dylan has not uh, given all his money away. He's also not going to the White House and trying to hobnob with politicians to change the world or pretend like he's doing that. And so, you know, it, it's not, it, I'm not really saying like, it's, I'm not, tr- I don't want this to turn into a purity discussion of like, yeah. he's sold out. It's not really what I'm after here. Right. It's more like, you don't get to be on stage pointing fingers for the very things you're now complicit in mm-hmm. on some level. Yeah. That is a problem. Yeah, I agree with that. And the last time that I saw them was in, in 2018. And I enjoyed the show and I got to see them do acrobat, which means nothing to you, but I certainly never thought I would ever get to see you two do acrobat in concert. Um, but, you know, it's 2018's fucking Trump administration, man. And they did, I mean, there was a lot of anti-Trump, explicitly anti-Trump stuff in the show. But, wow, like, how politically perceptive of you to be anti-Trump. Like, you right, know, right. I'm not going to fucking pat you in the back for that. Right. But then he went off on this compromise kind of speech at one point, which became his like favorite word somewhere around the time of the Good Friday Accords. Compromise? Yeah. Well, it's because of the Good Friday Accords in 1998. I'm not going to get into that. But he went off in his compromise speech and I was just, you know, standing there in the audience and I was just rolling my eyes. And I think I was on Twitter at the time. I think I actually tweeted at the band after the show, you know, pointlessly, but whatever. I was probably a little bit drunk, but I was like, compromise? Really? Really, really, like Trump is the president. Trump is the president, right? And the Republicans love him. They are sucking his dick on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. They're locking up children in cages. They are, they've thrown away the racist dog whistles in favor of racist tubas. They've got a goddamn racist marching band coming down fucking Pennsylvania Avenue, <laughs> right? And you want to talk about compromise? Suck my dick. Mm-hmm. And that was my, you know. And then I tried to move Disillusionment. on. Yes, and yeah. I then I tried to move on from that and en- just enjoy the performance is, is the songs for the rest of the show, you know. But that disillusionment has not gone away. 
and probably never will. That said, I'll probably go to bed tonight with that song from Songs of Experience in my head again, you know? I struggle with this because, you know, you get to like Marx's early writings, which let's not get into the fascinating on some level, on other levels, like, God, I'm tired of hearing about the French structuralists who claim that early Marx had this going on and late Marx had that going on and they're separate and yeah, but no, they're not separate. Put it all away. We know that the early Marx had the famous statement that I'm going to misquote, but something along the lines of, you know, in a, in a post-capitalist society, in a communist society, there's no reason why I can't fish in the morning, read in the afternoon, philosophize in the evening, et cetera, et cetera, right? We can do and be many things. We're creative beings. Right. And I love that. If there, if there isn't an explicit definition or willingness to define human nature in Marx's entire corpus, and if that's as close as we're going to get, which is that humans at their most fundamental level are intrinsically creative creatures, and we are at our best when we have the um, we have we are in an environment in which we get to attempt to express our creativity to the max. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible um, way of conceiving of humanity. I love it. Mm-hmm. I think I subscribe to it. So there's no reason why Bono shouldn't be able to play guitar in the morning and uh, philosophize in the afternoon and play politics in the evening, right? I want to resist the stay in your lane, Bono. Yes. But, right, if I have to look at how Dylan has done things versus Bono, this is, again, someone who's made as much as he's made. I don't know how, whatever, I don't know what it is, but some astronomical sum that hasn't been given away to charities and uh, without comment, right? Um, I think he does kind of have a sense of who he is what his role is, not what his lane is, but kind of what his function is as a poet and as a world-class poet and as a world-class poet that became, I would argue, world historical in that show me a history of the United States. Really show me a history of the 1960s that doesn't wind up dealing with Dylan explicitly and his music and the importance of that music in the larger framework of all the other musicians. But He's named every fucking time. It's unmistakable how significant in terms of a cultural zeitgeist contribution Dylan has made. And maybe history will prove that U2 is neck and neck. I don't know. My gut tells me probably not, but maybe. They're a big deal. They've they've moved millions of people. Um, But... I don't think that Dylan said, I'm going to stay in my lane. I think it was a kind of genuine self-knowledge about what he was put on this earth to do. And he understood it. And the, 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 in all, he understood it in all of its expansiveness and he understood it in, in some of its limitations. I wonder if some of this is not a stay in your lane, Bono, but like you're just fucking not, this wasn't, that wasn't your thing, man. And you kind of muddied the waters by uh, maybe you would have 
maybe I would have been a fan. I'm not sure. I don't think so. But um, I certainly don't like the the extra musical optics of it all. I think that's probably a good place to stop. I, I agree with what some of you just said. I, I disagree with a little bit of it, but part of what I disagree with has to do with Dylan. And if I respond to you, this will be a four hour long episode that turns into yet another podcast about Bob Dylan. And I think we should probably no say, doubt, no doubt. we should probably save that for later. And I might have a rose tinted, you know, view of Dylan. One final thing that I want to say, we don't have to pursue it now, but, um, I'm curious because you are your ancestors are Irish, right? Um, my name is Irish. Um, I feel at home when I go to Ireland. Um, I recently took a DNA test and found out that far more of my ancestors are German than wow. they are Irish. Interesting. Which I'm still working through. I'm sorry. I, it, it, you, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate. I say that. this as someone with German ancestry. Yeah, I, no, I appreciate that. Uh, that. Sympathy is what helps me get through, believe me. Yeah. Um, Just don't but, sympathize with the devil. Um, he's the only one I sympathize with anymore. Um, but yeah, let's, for the sake of the argument, yeah. So, okay. Irish, yeah. What I wanted to say about this was part of, I think, my, my really connecting with Berman beyond the music, but in a way it is connected to the music, even with the t- name of their band, Silver Jews, is... And he has gone on the record at different points and been evasive about where that name came from. He gave this sort of myth-making legend that he was cleaning up as a janitor in a in a business uh, in an office building. Looked out the window. There was a billboard for silver jewelry. It was cut off, and it said "Silver Jew." Boom! That was his name. But he's made other comments that I think reveal that that was a fiction. Sure. The statement that he finally coughed up that I think is the truth was that he chose Silver Jew or Silver Jews because of the fact that he is Jewish on his father's side. It's patrilineal. Exactly. And in the Jewish tradition... If you're not Jewish on your mother's side, mm-hmm. you're basically not Jewish. Right. However, right, back to Germany and uh, that glorious fucking aberration that uh, graced the world stage from 33 to 45, Sir Adolf Hitler, certainly made clear patrilineal, matrilineal didn't much matter to them. You were a Jew. So then you're in a double bind if you're a patrilineal Jew post-World War II because, well, actually pre or post, but certainly post with that, inf- with that inflection because uh, you're not only not really Jewish in potentially your own self-conception, but you're even if you wanted to self-identify as Jewish, you don't get acknowledged as Jewish by the real, in quotes, Jews who are maybe matrilineal at the least, or both. And so the silver comes as like, you're not only, you're not a golden, a golden Jew would be both sides. Silver is like, you're, it's like the second position of an already uh, minority position. I believe his phrase was the outsiders to the outsiders. The outsiders to the outsiders. And so I can relate to that. I mean, I'm Jewish on both sides. Jewish on my parents' side, but I was raised secular. 
I was hunting Easter eggs without understanding what that all really meant in my uh, particular uh, familial context. I, I wouldn't worry about that too much. I was raised Christian, and I was also hunting Easter eggs without having any idea what the Hell fuck yeah. that meant. All right. That would have been more interesting, though, if you were like celebrating Hanukkah. Yeah, no, I, you yes, know. I, yes. But uh, yeah, so like there was a part of me that's like, okay, not the same, not the same kind of... Uh, the outsider, the outsider, as he was defining it, but I get it in that uh, my family was so non-observant, completely secular, uh, more or less totally assimilated in that regard, um, that when I started to cultivate an interest in this, even for historical reasons, but what would become still not religious, but personal, uh, he was a beacon for me where I'm like, okay, I can wear a silver Jew shirt and feel totally at home in that in a way that I never can and haven't ever been able to inside of a synagogue or in a genuine Jewish community. So in a way, he helped me connect in a totally bizarre and out of left field way to a Jewish identity that is inescapable, but depending on where you are from and how you're raised, maybe quite foreign. Did any aspect of the Irish ancestry and how that connected to you too for you, uh, does this resonate at all from that end for you with those, with those variables? That's an incredible question, man. Um, and the answer is yes, but I want to be very clear that I don't want to compare anything about my experience to yours. That is, there's... Jewishness and the burden that comes with that identity and the history that comes with that identity is not something that I experienced. And I don't mean to claim that I went through something similar, but I did grow up feeling as though I had no real identity. I lived in a suburb that was equally between two major cities. My parents uh, both had worked to get rid of the accents that they mm -hmm. had been raised with. Mm -hmm. Uh, we lived in a suburb that had been created out of farmland uh, a, about 10 years before I was born. Um, we lived in a part of the state that didn't have mountains or beaches or deserts or anything that was in any way geographically distinctive. I felt very much in limbo that I had no cultural roots. And... At the time, as far as we knew, our ancestry was mostly Irish, mm. although we were wrong about that. But certainly the Irish is there. And so to connect with you two as an Irish band, even to the point that I did not understand really what he was talking about, what the situation was with the Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and the IRA and the UDA and all that kind of thing. I felt like on some level, these were my people. Mm -hmm. And then these people that I identified with as my people come to my country and then criticize my country, which I'm always down to hear people criticize my country because mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time doing it myself. So that's, I'm really glad you asked that actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I uh, had that. I, I sort of sparked on that as we were watching it. So I wondered if there was the, Irish ancestry connection that you felt was mm -hmm. being 
maybe cultivated in a positive sense, developing a positive connection to through this band in the way that a kind of um, idiosyncratic Jewish identity was cultivated for me, or I found a place for it a little more um, that felt true to me through Berman's music and through just identifying with him and with the band and with the sentiments. Um, but I think further, um, you know, you hear this cliche, friends of the family we choose. Music is also kind of the family we choose, um, or to put it a little differently, music is part of the identity we get to choose. And it's very intimate, very intimate. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it almost can't be, uh, it can't be, uh, I'm trying to find the right word here. You, you can't underestimate the potency of this stuff in how people make sense of themselves to themselves based on the music that they choose to bring closest to them, make closest to them. And I guess it's tricky because sometimes it chooses us. I think it's both. But um, certainly as Americans, nation of immigrants, uh, certainly those of us who are not indigenous that I think do struggle maybe profoundly. And I don't want to speak for indigenous communities in, in claiming to understand what identity, uh, navigating identity is like for people in those communities. But I can speak for myself. I can speak for my friends that are non-indigenous and have, uh, ancestral roots outside the continent, right? I think back to Godard's Breathless. You know, these characters uh, build themselves up off of movies. They model themselves after actors. They take on the gestures of gangsters as played in American films. I think for better or worse, when we are untethered from a actual ancestral cultural background or environment, you're left with the, um, the mountain of culture, both the garbage and the treasure. And you are as the suburban kid or myself as the Easter egg hunting Jew trying to figure out, well, no one has provided me with a script. So I guess we have to write one for ourselves. And I think part of that cobbling together process is in large part achieved through the cultural products that we bring closest to us. And um, there's a sadness in that. There's also immense freedom in it. It's a confusing mess. Um, and I don't want to say cultural product because that sounds like a commodification, although we are in a commodified reality. But it's deeper than that, right? I don't think you'd ever refer to U2 music as a cultural product. It would be something in this that is helping you connect with yourself. And uh, we're all on that quest, I think. Back to authenticity, as much as I, I understand why it is healthy to resist the the mystified notions that surround this term now. Um, there is still truth in the quest for landing on or working towards our truest selves. And the music that we love helps us get there, I think.
Good night, everybody. We'll see you next time on Candy Jail. Well, here we are, the Irish in America. The Irish have been coming to America for years. Going back to the Great Famine when the Irish were on the run from starvation and a British government that couldn't care less. Right up to today, you know, there are more Irish immigrants here in America today than ever. Some illegal, some legal. A lot of them are just running from high unemployment. Some run from the troubles in Northern Ireland, from the hatred of the H-blocks and torture. Others from wild acts of terrorism, like we had today in a town called Inniskillen, where 11 people lie dead, many more injured on a Sunday, bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm.